Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than a million downloads and listeners in over a hundred countries. In this episode, we explore luck. Does luck exist? Is there a science behind luck? What does the research reveal about lucky people and unlucky people? Is it possible to manufacture your own luck? We speak with research psychologist, Dr. Richard Wiseman and learn the truth about luck and how you just might be able to create a little bit more in your own life. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers. So be sure to go there and sign up. First, you're going to get awesome free guides that we create based on listener demand, including our most popular guide, how to organize and remember everything. You can get that completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every single week called Mindset Monday. Short, simple, actionable, science-based advice that you can implement into your life. Listeners have been loving this email. Next, you're going to get listener-exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. Vote on guests, change our intro music, even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. So be sure to stay on the list. Only people on the email list have access to these opportunities. You can sign up by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage, or if you're on the go, if you're out and about, driving around, whatever else, you can text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed the habits of high achievers, the motivation myth. Dug deep into the habits, routines, and strategies you can use to achieve more in less time. Talked about the balance between hustle and hard work versus recovery, and much more with our guest, Jeff Hayden. If you want to get the habits and strategies the top performers use to achieve results in the real world, listen to that interview. Now, without further ado, 
Here's Dr. Richard Wiseman. I did want to give a heads up. He is in England, so we had a little bit of a choppy connection. Nothing too bad, but I just wanted to let you know before the interview starts. Here we go. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Dr. Richard Wiseman. Richard has been described by the Scientific American as the most interesting and innovative experimental psychologist in the world today. His books have sold over 3 million copies. He began his career working as a magician and now holds Britain's only professorship in the public understanding of psychology. His work has been featured across the globe and he's delivered keynotes to the Royal Society, the Swiss Economic Forum, Google, and more. Richard, welcome to the Science of Success. A pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, we're very excited to have you on today. So I'd love to start out. I definitely want to dig into a number of things you've written about and spoken about. To start out, though, your background and the journey of how you kind of became fascinated with all these different subjects is, is fascinating. So I'd love to begin with that and hear a little bit about, you know, how you began and sort of where that journey took you. I guess I began with my passion in life, which was magic and performing uh, magic. So when I was around about eight years old, I saw my first magic trick, really got into it and uh, went to the public library and started reading a lot about magic. And so I was a professional performer in my uh, early teens and then started to look more at the psychology of magic, because if you're going to be a good magician, you need to understand how your audience thinks and feels. And it's a, it's a pretty tough order because you're standing in front of a group of strangers and you need to do psychology experiments, a la magic tricks, night after night and fool every single person in the room. You, you, know, you can't have a, a good night where you just fool 80% of people. So you do have to understand how people's minds work, uh, where their attention is, how they're perceiving what's in front of them, how they're remembering the performance afterwards, particularly when they discuss it with their friends friends. And so I just became interested in that very practical applied aspect of psychology and essentially became so interested in it that I studied as an experimental psychologist first at uh, University College London, which perhaps not surprisingly is in London. And at the end of that, I was looking for an interesting PhD and by chance, I saw a poster up on the wall. This was the days before email, so we used to communicate with posters. And there was a poster up on the wall saying that there was a professor uh, in the, the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And he was interested in the psychology of deception and was looking for a candidate explore that topic with him. So I applied uh, to the University of Edinburgh, uh, was accepted on that course and spent four years looking at uh, deception. And then at the end of that, uh, came back down to the south of uh, the UK, to the University of Hertfordshire, and started to work on social psychology and uh, on the psychology of self-development. And that's where I've been ever since. So I've only really had one proper job, which has been at the university. And that's been for 20 something years now. But that, that's basically the, the kind of line through in terms of my career. So the psychology of deception sounds fascinating. Tell me a little bit, what, what were kind of some of the fundamental conclusions or ideas that, that you uncovered when you were working on that? Well, part of it, again, was looking at the psychology of magic. So, you know, magicians need to convince you of a certain narrative, and that narrative has something impossible in it, you know, that uh, somebody levitates or appears or disappears or whatever it is. But behind that narrative, you have the real narrative, uh, the, the method, as magicians like to call it, the trapdoors or the mirrors. And, and we were looking at ways in which uh, magicians encourage you to think one set of things and not ask certain questions. So if you take a very I don't know, a very kind of simple trick. 
where you ask people to think of a number between one and 10, and then the magician might predict that people are going to say number seven. Uh, that's to do with the fact that if that trick fools you, it's to do with the fact that you don't realize that seven is the most frequently chosen number and, and so on. So they hide that little bit away from you. So that was one part of it. The other part was looking at the psychology of lying and particularly whether people, uh, when they lie, give off more information, give off more tells, if you like, using their body language or using the words they say. And so uh, we carried out quite a well-known experiment on the British media where we had uh, a very well-known political commentator uh, go on to a, a television program and I interviewed him twice, uh, once about his uh, favorite film, and he told me he loved uh, Gone with the Wind, and then asked him a second time about his favorite film, and he told me he loved Some Like It Hot. And because one of them was a complete lie, yes, he hated one of those two films. So we had the public vote onto which they thought was the uh, the lie. And in line with all of the uh, experimental work into lying, they were about 50-50, no better than chance. Most people think they're good lie detectors, but they're really not. When we took just the the soundtrack of those two interviews and put them on the radio or just uh, published the transcripts in a national newspaper, people's lie detecting abilities went up into the 60, 70 uh, percent. And the reason for that is that when we lie, it's very easy to control our body language, you know, whether we gesture or smile and where we It's much harder to control the words we say and how we say them. And so if you shift people's attention onto those attributes, they become much better lie detectors. And, and that was all part of that deception work as well. That's fascinating. So an average person will be essentially no better than a 50-50 chance of detecting a liar if they're looking at a video of someone but if you take them to the transcript, you said it goes up to 60 to 70 percent? Absolutely. It's one of the simplest of fixes. Uh, and, and so if you're thinking someone's going to lie to you, actually just getting them on the phone is much better than uh, interviewing them or speaking to them face to face. And in fact, actually, I return to that. I know we'll probably talk about 59 seconds later on, but I, I return to that topic in 59 seconds, uh, which is my, my book about um, uh, these sorts of things. And the other aspect of, of lie detection is that people don't want to commit the lie to paper, to to something that you can look back and go, hold on a second, you told me that at that point. They rather like the idea of it, of it being a spoken lie uh, because then they, they, they can say, oh, that you've misremembered what I said. And so in, in 59 seconds, I was talking about some of the research, which is that if you want to find out whether someone's lying to you, uh, that the magic words to use are, can you email that to me? And if they are lying, that email will never arrive. Or when it does arrive, it's somewhat different to what they just told you face to face. So I became just interested in these these simple wins, these, these things which are evidence-based that can have a, a very big impact. That's fascinating. I love that simple sort of practical strategy of just asking someone to email you and then sort of gauging whether that's different from what they communicated to you. I'd love to transition because there, there's so many things I want to talk about in this interview. Your work on luck is, is one of the most fascinating things that I think you've done. I'd love to kind of start out with, you know, many people think of luck. They think that it's kind of randomness or chance or, or sort of arbitrary. You know, from your perspective and from the, the work and the research that you've done, what does it mean to be lucky and, and does luck exist? Well, that work dates back a long way. It dates back to the late 1990s, actually. And and at that time, and and this was before really the the kind of evidence-based self-help movement was around. It was really a little bit before even what's called positive psychology was around. And I was talking to people about 
key moments in their lives, how they ended up in certain relationships and, and certain careers. And they would talk about these lucky and unlucky moments. They would talk about themselves being a lucky or unlucky person. And at that point in time, really people, psychologists had dismissed the concept of luck. They'd said, look, it's, it's just random. It's like winning or losing the lottery, that there's no science to be had here. Or these people are kidding themselves. Then they're not really lucky. And so I, I embarked on this research project, which was gathering together about a thousand people who considered themselves exceptionally lucky and unlucky, and then presenting them with various tasks and seeing how they responded. And what we saw even very early on in that research, within probably the first six months, it was a, a four-year project, but within the first six months, we saw very big differences emerging between the lucky and the unlucky people. And, and so we came to the conclusion towards the end of that project, that for the most part, and it's, it's not true of every aspect of your life, but for the most part, people are creating their own luck by the way they were thinking and the way they were behaving. Now, they, they didn't realize that. It didn't look like that to them. That would be like a magic trick. To them, it looked a magical thing that was just happening and that they were either destined to do well in life or, or fated to do badly. But we could see that unconsciously they were using certain tricks to accomplish that. And that then formed the basis of uh, my very first book, which was the, the Luck Factor, which, again, was the first kind of evidence-based take on, on self-help, where we were saying to people, look, don't just listen to a a self-help guru, ask for the evidence. We've done the experiments. We can tell you what we found. And here are some exercises that hopefully will uh, make you luckier in life. Well, I want to dig into how to, how to create or, or manufacture your own luck. But before we do, I'm really curious if you could share maybe an example or two or a story uh, from some of the research you did around luck, because I know there's some really kind of interesting and compelling examples. Well, we had a lot of them. I mean, in terms of the – and there's enormous consistency. So, so I think uh, the lucky people are you know, always in the right place at the right time, lots of opportunities. They always fall on their feet and so on. In terms of the unluckiest people, we had uh, one woman who had uh, five car accidents in one 50-mile journey, which she put down to her jinxed uh, green car. And then one day, we, she came to the university and we watched her trying to park the car and we realized there were a few other factors uh, in there and she was also unlucky in love so she signed up with a dating agency and the first date came off his motorbike and broke his leg uh, the replacement date walked into a, a glass door and broke his nose and eventually when she found someone to marry the church they were going to get married in was was burnt down one day before the wedding and and that was how her whole life had gone that was very typical of the unlucky people you know everything they touched was an absolute disaster and then on the flip side you have these lucky people who wanted to start with a new kind of business venture and went to a party and you know, met somebody there by chance. And that person was exactly the person they needed in order to, to catapult themselves forward. And they became millionaires and so on. So very big differences uh, between the two groups. And how can somebody, for example, the woman who was consistently unlucky, how could she sort of transition or become someone who is lucky? What, what were some of the differences between her and a lucky person? Well, if we start with the differences, one was a very interesting, almost perceptual difference, actually, in, in terms of how they were seeing the world. And this was the form, the basis for an experiment we did that's then become quite well known in terms of having people look at a newspaper. So we asked people to come into the lab to flick through a newspaper and just count the number of photographs in the newspaper. It's a fairly dull thing to do. 
What we didn't tell them is there were two large opportunities placed in the newspaper. One was a half-page advert with massive type that said, "There are stop counting, there are 42 photographs in this newspaper. And the other was another half-page advert uh, that said, say you've seen this, tell the experimenter you've seen this and win whatever it was, £100 or something. And what was fascinating was the lucky people tended to spot those opportunities. And so they would stop and go, my goodness, that's great. You know, I don't need to count all the, uh, the photographs or can I have my prize now? The unlucky people literally turned the page and didn't see them. And that's to do with this notion of an attentional spotlight, that when we look at the world, we're not seeing everything that's in front of us. We're seeing a small part of it where, where we place our active attention. And when you become worried and anxious and concerned, as the unlucky people were, that becomes very small. You become very focused. And in doing so, you don't see something if you don't expect to see it. The lucky people uh, were far more relaxed and far more cheerful, had a larger attentional spotlight, and so more likely to see opportunities they don't expect and also act on them. So that was the type of study we were doing in order to try and tease really what was happening, why one group would say, my goodness, I get all these opportunities, and another group would say, you know, I, I never get a break. I love the newspaper uh, experiment. I think it's one of my favorite examples, and I'm so glad you shared it. And it just demonstrates really clearly that, you know, it's it's not necessarily sort of fate and random chance that's causing people to be lucky or unlucky. Obviously, there's a factor of that. But in many ways, you know, you can kind of create your own luck. Absolutely. I mean, that was the premise of the um, the research. And then what we did was to go on and, and test that and say, well, hold on a second. If we take a group of people who are not particularly lucky or unlucky – and we get them to think and behave like a lucky person, does that increase their luck? And, and that, that data uh, forms the basis of the Luck Factor book. And we found the very simple exercises. So uh, perhaps simplest one, but one of the most popular, and, and which is now a well-known exercise, but at the time it wasn't, which is just getting people to keep a luck diary. And at the end of each day, writing down the most positive thing or positive thought that um, they've had during that day or one negative event that used to happen is no longer happening or some sense of gratitude they have for their friends or family or health or job or whatever. That starts to reorient people quite quickly. So one of the issues with um, the focusing is that if you're an unlucky person or think you are, you literally do not see the good things in your life until you start to carry out that exercise. So it's a very, very simple intervention and found it was the simplest of interventions that had the most powerful effect. But you could see dramatically over the course of a month or two, people becoming more positive, becoming luckier because of those interventions. I'd love to dig into a few of the other kind of tactics and strategies that you talked about that people can use to create their own luck. Well, there were lots of them. Uh, we looked at intuition. Lucky people tended to be a little bit more intuitive than unlucky people. They tended to be risk takers uh, without being reckless. They also tended, when bad things happened, to be very resilient. So whereas the unlucky people would always generate what are called positive counterfactuals, that, that is, when a bad event happened, they always imagined how it could have been much, much better. So, you know, if they, um, you know, I, I don't know, fell down the stairs, broke their leg, they said, well, I could have fallen down the stairs and not broken my leg. And therefore, this is a terrible, terrible outcome. What lucky people do naturally is imagine it could have been far 
And and so they'll go, well, I could have broke, fallen down the stairs and broken both of my legs, uh, for example. And so that automatic generating of uh, negative counterfactuals uh, really helps people with resilience, as does finding the silver lining, that no matter how bad the event, there will be something good that has come from it. And again, lucky people very naturally do that. Unlucky people, it's very, very hard for them until that exercise is, is pointed out to them uh, to find uh, the, the positive in uh, what seems like a negative event. So all these things are very simple, but I think we're the first people to, to really try and put numbers to them, to, to kind of go, okay, let's test this. Let's find out what works and what doesn't work. And I just want to confirm again for people listening that your your research came to the fundamental conclusion that people who are and think of themselves as unlucky can learn these basic behaviors and literally sort of manufacture or create their own luck and become a luckier person just by implementing a few of these behaviors. That's right. I mean, it doesn't feel like that at the time. It feels like, as, as I say, something magical or supernatural is happening, but it is deeply psychological. It's, it's not true of everything. I mean, there are some events in your life that, that really are chance and nothing to do with you. But for the most part, you're creating your own good and bad luck by the way you're thinking and feeling. More importantly, change how you think and feel, and you can increase the luck you experience. And that was the very radical notion uh, which, which underlied the, uh, the Luck Factor book. And so when that came out, it, it sold right across the world and became this um, kind of big bestseller, which was a lovely thing to see, that, that we could take our research and give it not only a national, but an international platform for people. And what would you say to someone who's listening and, and sort of thinks to themselves, yeah, that sounds great, but that's not going to work for me, or you know, that's, you know, it's just not, not going to happen when I do it, or I can't train my mind to see the positive in things? I guess oh, we heard that a lot from the, the unlucky uh, people. And what we found was it was the simplest of interventions that had the big effects. The, the problem with some of these more interventions is that people get confused or they don't have the willpower to keep going or they're not quite certain what they should do. So everything is very simple. We know it works with the vast majority of people. I have to say, not there's around about 20% of people that rather enjoy being unlucky. And what I mean by that is their self-identity is bound up with that. They're the person that goes to parties and knocks over glasses and, oh, my goodness, that's clumsy me. Everything I do, uh, absolutely terrible. And at some level, they're enjoying that and at some level are deeply afraid to move away from that identity. And those folks are very hard to reach, actually. But for the vast majority of people, actually, these things do work, but you do need to do it. You know, if, if you give up before you start, clearly it's, it's not going to have much of an impact. You need to do these things. So to the person that says, well, they, they don't work or won't work, I would say, come back after a month of doing them and then tell me that. If you tell it to me right now, I'm, I'm going to be a bit skeptical because, you know, you're, you're giving up before you've started. So you mentioned the luck diary. We talked a little bit about sort of finding silver linings what are some of the other really simple strategies that, that people can implement? Well, part of it was about flexibility, that even when the unlucky people saw an opportunity, they were very scared to move forward because they were in a rut and they rather liked routine, even though it wasn't a very successful routine. So getting people to be more flexible, getting people to try things they haven't tried before, going to work or college with a different route, listening to whatever it is, radio uh, so that you don't normally listen to, trying different types of food, altering your conversational style if you're normal, spending a bit more time 
vice versa, if you're an introvert, uh, going two hours without saying the word I, all these things give you a sense of flexibility. And that means that when an opportunity comes along, you're far more likely to make the most of that opportunity rather than go, no, I'm not that sort of person. I'm not the sort of person who's flexible and changes. So even these simple sort of daily interventions, things like taking a different route to work, changing the conversational sort of strategies or styles that you're using, maybe going for a walk randomly or to a different place that you, you don't typically do, all of these create sort of the, the behavior or the, the sort of competency of flexibility, which then enables you to kind of capture luck, quote unquote, when it sort of falls into your lap. That's pretty much it. it. It puts you into the mindset of, in that instance, of somebody who's flexible, who changes. I mean, the one thing we know about life is it's not predictable. The, the strategies that worked last week may not work so well next week. And so you need to be able to change and alter the sort of person you are. And lucky people were like that. They were very open to an uncertain future. They thought they'd be able to cope. But they were very open to an uncertain future where the unlucky people really liked the idea of a plan. And so that even if that plan didn't work out, they would still keep on repeating it because it, at least it had some certainty to it. Also, lucky people tended to be team players. They tended to be trying to negotiate win-wins all of the time and to build up a network of contacts around them. They were very, very well connected. Uh, the unlucky people tended to be socially uh, isolated. And so if they had an idea, uh, they hadn't really got anyone to bounce it off of. They hadn't got that experience of talking to somebody and then going, oh, you should meet my friend. They, they, they're really interested in that. And that plays an absolute key role in success. So that was about the, the social side of it rather than the cognitive side. That's really interesting. And so these, you know, that's kind of another one of these learned behaviors is that if you become more social, you can also create luck essentially through, through sort of the, the network effect of meeting and engaging with more people. Oh, absolutely. I, I can remember one lucky person who came into the, the lab and they were trying to sell their car. And we're doing the experiment. On the way out, they spoke to one of the secretaries in the department. And they were chatting and then said to the secretary, you're not interested in buying a new car, right? Because I've got a car out in front. And the secretary said, I am actually. How weird should mention that? Yeah, I am. And so the two of them got chatting and he ended up selling his car to her. Now, that's a very, very good example of him creating his own good luck. He will look back on that and go, my goodness, what are the chances? I just happened to bump into somebody. The fact is he was bumping into people all of the time. He was buying a lot of times a day in that sense. And occasionally he'd hit the jackpot. The unlucky people simply weren't buying the tickets. They, they, they weren't uh, spending any time with other people or exploring those relationships in an open way. And so they weren't getting those opportunities. Yeah, it's the old it's the old kind of analogy that, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? And so lucky people, it sounds like, and according to the research, are essentially sort of constantly dabbling and exploring all these potential opportunities and, and sort of things that may emerge. And then when it does, they're like, oh, look at that, that, that opportunity kind of emerged. That's right. And also, particularly with social networks, if you hit a node, if you hit somebody who's very well connected, then you're massively increasing your chances. So you're not just talking to that person at that party. You're essentially talking to all of the people they know. And so if, you, if you're talking to somebody who's well connected, they, they might be that opportunity is not for them, but they'll say, oh, let, let me introduce you to, to so-and-so. 
and and so with networking, uh, the, the the way it works in terms of uh, how we're connected to others, it's very easy to get access to a very large number of people, and and that's what the lucky people were were so skilled at doing. Well, I think digging down the you know the rabbit hole of how to build relationships and, and social networking is probably beyond uh, the full scope of our conversation. But for listeners who are curious, we do have another interview with Keith Ferrazzi that goes super deep into a lot of strategies you can use to implement uh, many of those different things. I'm curious, I, I'd love to kind of transition a little bit. I mean, the luck, the, the, the luck factor and all the work you did there is really fascinating. But I want to talk about some of the other work you've done, because I also think it, it's really aligned with what the show focuses on and what, what we often talk about on here. In 59 Seconds, which is, which is one of your other books, you talk, to, you talk at length about sort of debunking some of the myths and confusion points and self-help. I'm curious, what, what kind of led you to, to want to write that book? 59, I mean, all, all of the books have slightly odd origins. 59 was because I went out for lunch, I think it was, with a friend of mine who's uh, quite the CEO in quite a big organization. And she started to talk about happiness. And she said, oh, you know, you know a bit about happiness. Well, how does it work in terms of psychology? I started to answer. And she said, you know, I'm quite a big, uh, sort of quite busy person. Uh, can you really tell me and sort of cut it down a bit? And I said, well, how long have you got? And she said, around about a minute. And I thought that's kind of an intuition that are there ideas in psychology that can be conveyed? And so originally the book was called 60 Seconds and we round and it was about evidence based learning in less than a minute. And at one meeting, I said precisely that. I said less than a minute. And someone said, well, that's not 60 seconds. It's 59 seconds. And that's a, a much better title uh, for all sorts of reasons. And so part of that book is debunking the myths of self-help. The things which we all like to believe, uh, which simply aren't true and therefore are, are hurting us. And then the other part is, and here's what you can actually do to be more successful uh, in these various domains, such as happiness and relationships and parenting and, and so on. So that was the origins of uh, of that book. And it then became a very successful uh, YouTube channel and uh, has, has been all around the world again. So, you know, it's probably the book that I'm best known for. And actually, the, the quickest one to write, I think that was probably written in about two months. So it was a lot of stuff that I've been storing up in my head. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. What were some of the, the big myths that you uncovered that, that kind of permeate self-help? I think the biggest one was this notion of visualization, that there are so many self-help books that tell people to visualize endpoint. That is, to visualize yourself in five years in the perfect relationship, perfect career, whatever it is. And when you look at the psychology to an experiment. There isn't a single experiment that doesn't say that that is a terrible, terrible idea. It makes you feel good, which is why people like doing it. The problem is, in terms of success, in, in terms of bringing that future into reality, it sets your expectations very high and encourages you not to do anything else. All you need to do is dream. And so, when that future doesn't emerge, then you become very discouraged. You think, well, I, I gave it my best shot and quite fatalistic and so very unlikely to move on to other strategies. So, there's probably about 10, 15 papers now showing that across pretty much every domain, that aspect, that, that application of visualization is a terrible idea. There's an equally large literature that says that visualization is a powerful tool, but you visualize process, not endpoint. If you want to do well in an exam, you visualize yourself doing the sorts of things good students do, asking questions in class, revising, you know, going that little bit further than the other students or whatever. You don't visualize yourself sitting down and having a wonderful exam or opening an envelope and taking out an A-grade certificate. So I think that was one of the key things. I mean, that notion that visualization of endpoint is now all over the place. But uh, I, I think we're the first to sort of bring it into kind of public consciousness. That's a great distinction because I think it, it gets lost on a lot of people when they talk about visualization. The methodology itself can be effective, but it needs to be applied to a process as opposed to an endpoint. That's correct. That's correct. And then there's a large literature suggesting exactly that. But even within, it wasn't known. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> all these athletes are being encouraged to visualize exactly the wrong thing. So, it's a complete waste of time. So, it was nice to sort of dig up some of these. 
Uh, the other one uh, was uh, brainstorming, uh, this notion of all getting together in the room and, and uh, coming up with ideas, again, reduces creativity by around about 20%. So, you know, as we speak, there'll be organizations around the world where everyone's sitting around in a room and uh, trying to solve a problem in a creative way, brainstorming terrible applied in, in that particular way. What is far more effective is everyone brainstorms on their own and they arrive at that meeting ideas and you go around the table and everyone discusses their three ideas. Then you see big increases in both the number of ideas, obviously, and the originality so it's a very simple tweak, but it's a very important one. We've been getting brainstorming wrong uh, for many, many years. That makes a lot of sense. So what was the sort of science or the reasoning behind why brainstorming in a group is so ineffective? There's two bits of science behind it. One is social loafing, which is that put anyone in a group and some people would just simply not try very hard because then uh, there was there's two lots of thinking on it. One they're thinking, well, if I come up with a key idea, the whole group gets the, the kind of glory for that, which I don't like the sound of. The other is I can just lean back and let everyone else do the work. And both of those ideas means that uh, people don't tend to engage very much. The other is that within any group, you'll get some people that dominate. And, you know, who knew the most dominating people are not the most creative? And they end up telling you all their ideas and the quieter people don't uh, get a word in. And so simply by having this very simple intervention, simple change of everyone arriving with three ideas uh, gets rid of all of those problems uh, very, very effectively. And what, what were some of the other kind of myths that permeate self-help that, that you uncovered in 59 Seconds? Quite a few of them in there. I mean, right, I think when I was writing it, uh, the, the notion of the Harvard uh, motivational study, which is the, the study where the, the Harvard researchers, I mean, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's credited to various universities, but normally Harvard. Uh, Harvard researchers go in, ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, and only 3% know, and that 3% for 20-something years uh, accounts for 90% of the income of the uh, cohort. Used all over the place to encourage people uh, to get their kids to focus very young. And when you look at the evidence for it, there simply isn't any evidence. That, that's a complete work of fiction. That experiment has never been conducted. And people need to know that, that there is no hard evidence that getting children to focus very young will have any positive impact uh, on their, their long-term success or career. So, you know, again, you know, parents didn't know that. And I, I regularly talk to organizations and you get people in the audience saying, I, I just had no idea. That's entirely fictitious. So there's quite a lot of, uh, of kind of myth busting in that book. You know, I'm curious because one of the things that, that we focus on a lot on the science of success is, is what we call evidence-based growth, which is basically thinking about the world from a perspective of evidence first and trying to understand what does the science say, what does the evidence say, and what does that mean for, for us as, as individuals trying to achieve our goals and, and sort of create a better world. And why do you think that it's so hard within self-help to to bring that evidence to the forefront and there's often it seems like there's so much noise that it's it's really challenging to sort of distinguish what the signal is i think it's it's hard for two reasons one is that we were equipped with common sense the problem being it's often wrong but you know intuitively it feels like if you get kids to focus young that would be a good thing intuitively it feels that all sitting around a room and, and kicking around some ideas 
is a good thing. Our intuitions are often wrong. So that's one reason why, why it's tricky. The other is that the psychological literature is really spread out. I mean, it, it is immense now and that you need a fair bit of expertise to even find out where the relevant papers are and even more expertise to be able to read them and actually know what they're trying to say in terms of the, the data. So I think it is very, very tough for people to actually find the evidence. And that, that was really the thinking behind 59 Seconds, to be honest, actually, was saying to people, look, I will do all that hard work for you. And I think I've probably read close to a couple of thousand papers, academic papers for that book. I will do all that hard work, and then I will present it in a way that I think is fair and uh, with some take-home messages. But I, I think it is very, very difficult, particularly now with the, the web, when there are just so many websites out there telling you so many different things. And unless you have access to those primary sources, you're, you're not really going to know who or what to believe. And so what can a, you know, sort of a well-intentioned individual who's not a scientist do if they're looking for these kind of bastions of, of you know, evidence-based strategies in today's world? Well, obviously, read my books is the main thing. Uh, that's why I always advise anyone uh, to do. But I, I think always ask the question, where's the evidence? Where is this coming from? And also, how much are you investing in it? Because if it's something which is going to take you a couple of hours every day or something like that, you're going to want to know that there is some kind of evidential underpinning, that it's in a peer-reviewed journal or whatever it is. So I, I just think asking for evidence is, is absolutely key and not believing something just because it sounds plausible or it's easy. If it's you know the sort of thing which you enjoy doing, well, it may not be having a wonderful effect on, on your life. And also, if, if you're not becoming more successful with it, if it's not making you happier or improving relationships or so, just stop and do something else. So it's it's not rocket science, but I, I appreciate that it, it can be quite tricky for people, particularly on the evidential front. Yeah, I think that's a struggle that we we think about a lot. Is you know how can you know obviously we uh, on the show we take a lot of time, we read through a lot of the research, we try to find people who who have done their homework and actually speak from a position of you know sort of scientific authority. But it's definitely a struggle, you know, and, and I think a lot about. There's so much just noise out there. How can we see through the mist and figure out, all right, what's actually true, what's actually effective? And, uh, and you know, it's, it's something that's kind of a mission of ours and that we spend a lot of time thinking about. It's important work, and it's, it's even more important when you move over to the health domain, where people are doing all sorts of weird procedures that, that aren't helping at all. And, and so some of the, the sort of cutting-edge health research is showing that the, some of the things we thought were extremely helpful, in, in, even in terms of some sorts of surgery and pills and so on, are simply having no effect. So, it's, so if it's a problem there, uh, it's definitely going to be a problem when you move over to, uh, to psychology. Well, I'm curious. There's there's one other strategy that that you talked about in 59 seconds that I thought was really interesting, which is the idea of writing your own eulogy. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a lovely idea. I mean, it's it's well, not when you come to do it. It's quite a terrifying idea. Practically, it's lovely, which is this notion that we don't realize perhaps life is and it's very easy to get distracted and to just simply have a good time and not think about the bigger picture and it's only when you get slightly later on in life that you start to realize there are things you wish you'd done and, and that some things are a little bit more meaningful than others and, and so on and writing your own eulogy is a nice way of cutting to the chase and so you say to somebody 
you know, what do you want someone to stand up at your own funeral and say about you? It's a very effective way of setting goals. And so uh, if you ask people to do that, then, then look at the discrepancy between what they've written for that perfect eulogy and their life as it uh, currently is. You can see people suddenly start to shift and go, well, I'd like someone to stand up at my funeral and say, what a kind person I've been. I've helped all my friends and family. And then you say, so currently, are you helping your friends and family? And they say, no, I'm not. And so it's fairly obvious where the shift is. So it's, it's a lovely exercise. There's a lot of psychology to to back that up uh, into a field called um, terror management. And it's very interesting. So, yeah, it's something I recommend, actually, to, to all of my students. What is terror management? Terror management theory is this notion that it, there are certain things that scare us and the, the, how we respond to that. And because the biggest thing that scares us is death. And so most people run away from death. But actually, when people to uh, confront the fact that is fine on the few things we know with 100% certainty. Actually, it isn't quite so scary. It can be quite empowering. And that's a very old idea. I mean, the idea of memento moris, which was, you know, you see skeletons in paintings or something like that. Those are there to remind the viewer that life is short and, and that you should live the best, best life possible right now because your life may end uh, much sooner than you think. So it's a very old psychological intervention, uh, but it's one. I want to segue now and, and get into a little bit to talk about the as if principle. I find that really, really fascinating, and it's something that you know I think is is worthwhile to share with the listeners. Would you talk a little bit about kind of what that is and 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 how you you came to talk about that? The yeah, the as if principle again dates back to the the roots of of psychology, and uh, particularly to uh, William James, who's one of the founding fathers of of psychology around the turn of the the last century. And the obvious way of looking at the link between let, let's go with behavior and emotion is that your emotions create certain behaviors. And that's, that feels like common sense. So when you feel happy, you smile. What James did was to question that and turn it on its head and say, well, is the opposite true? Is there a kind of back channel, which is that if you face, force your face into a smile, do you end up feeling happier? And he wasn't an experimentalist. He was a philosopher and so posed that question in various domains before the experimentalists come along and start to go, well, let's, let's ask that question. You know, when you behave in certain ways, does that affect the way you think and the way you feel? And they found that it did. You behave as if you are happy, you feel happier. You behave if you're, as if you're confident, you feel more confident. And that is the, the basis of the book, uh, which in America is, is called The uh, As If Principle. And I just explored that, that very simple idea in, in lots of different domains. Is that essentially the, the idea of fake it till you make it? It, a little bit, a little bit. I think it, it's not the same as, as that, in, in part because I, the, the, the word kind of fake it has a slightly different uh, meaning to it. But it is that notion that if you, yes, behave in a certain way, that will affect how you think and behave, uh, think and feel. Uh, fake it until you make it is often about how it influences uh, to perceive you. And it's not quite that. It, it's more about how your behavior affects yourself and then that affects others. So it, it's it's the, the fake it to you make it is, oh, I'm going to appear very confident and other people will see me as, as more confident. 
the as if principle is I'm going to act more confident. That makes me feel more confident. And therefore, I am perceived as more confident. Tell me a little bit about the, the science behind that. What, what does kind of the research say? Or can you, should you share some of the specific conclusions or examples from, from some of the studies? Well, in terms of the, the, uh, the actual pathways, we, we don't really know, to be honest. There, there is a, a very profound theory that sits behind it. And, and this is why it interested William James. The, the theory is that your entire common sense notion that you feel happy and therefore smile is simply wrong, that you have no idea how you feel until you observe yourself. So it gets to the, the, the roots of consciousness. So the idea is that sort of there's someone sitting in your head that's watching your behavior and then deciding how you, you feel. And so that, according to that theory, it's absolutely crucial that, that you behave in, in, in sort of certain ways because it really does uh, influence uh, how, you, how you literally uh, see yourself. So it has a, there's, a, there's a profound debate within the consciousness movement about why it may work. What we do know is across very many different domains, you see the same effect again and again and again. And so, in fact, actually one of the most controversial uh, illustrations of it, but still uh, one which I think says still got merit, uh, is the power posing. Uh, which is Amy Cuppy's work, uh, where you stand in certain ways and you feel more powerful and, and so on. Now, there's a lot of debate about that uh, particular brand of work, but still the, the fundamental principle uh, there, which is your actions uh, dictate how you uh, feel and think, I, I think is sound. Tell me a little bit about specifically, how does the as-if principle apply in the context of things like phobias, anxiety, or depression? Well, if we take the last of those, depression, it's, it's a very effective way of getting people out of depression, which is that you get them to behave as if they're not depressed. I mean, if, if you get active, depressed people to be far more active, uh, to do things like gardening, to be more involved in exercise and so on, it alleviates the depression reasonably rapidly. The same with phobias, where if you're scared of whatever it is, uh, a spider, if it is you slowly bring a spider towards someone, you get them to behave as if they are not afraid, i.e. they relax and calm down, it gets rid of the phobia very quickly. So it's, it's a very simple idea, but it sits throughout the entire history of psychology in all these different domains, which actually hadn't ever been pulled together before. And so that, that book is talking or is reviewing areas which actually within the, the academic psychology would normally be seen as quite separate and populated by academics that don't normally talk to one another across those areas. Do you have kind of a specific kind of concrete example of how somebody could apply the as if principle to happiness, for example? So just thinking about, you know, if I want to be happier, what sort of things would I do if I were happier? If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, well, happiness is the easiest one because you think, well, how do I behave when I'm happy? Maybe you sing and maybe you dance and maybe you smile and maybe you talk to other people and maybe you go out for the evening to a party. Well, do all those things. Do all those things and you will feel happier. The problem is motivating yourself to do that. But the, once you do do these things, you'll feel happier. So all you say is, well, you know, how do I behave when I think and feel like that? Okay, I'll force myself to do that. And the effect is very, very fast. So you feel those effects within about 30, 40 seconds. They're some of the fastest moving effects uh, in, in psychology. So, you know, it's, it's, it's simple stuff. But for some reason, it's not something that often comes up on people's kind of common sense radar uh, until they start to think about it. 
how do we generate the the willpower, the motivation to actually take those actions, especially, you know, I feel like it's hardest to do that when you're in a negative state. It is hard, but it's not that hard. So I, I think, you know, singing, if you're on your own, singing a song, dancing around, whatever, they're not that difficult things to do. It's not like some huge happiness intervention where you need to think about your explanatory style and whether you've just applied it. But, you know, it is just having a good time. So I, I think that's that's very important. It's It's also in terms of explaining away your internal states. And so if you're, I don't know, nervous before a talk and you can feel the sort of butterflies in your stomach, you can relabel those. You can say, well, I'm not nervous. I'm acting as if I'm excited. And that relabeling then changes how you see yourself. And you go, well, I'm excited to give this talk. Let me get up there and start. Not I'm nervous. Uh, I don't really want to go up there and start. So it can also apply to how do you label and perceive internal states. So labeling could also be kind of a powerful component of acting as if you were happy or confident or excited, et cetera. That's right. If you see your own behavior in a, in a different way and in a more positive way, then that again changes uh, how you, you think and feel. So it's, it's a curious one because the, the principle, the, the theory links together all these different ideas in psychology. And it's, it's for me why the book was interesting to do because it goes right across, you know, motivation and persuasion. Uh, so if, if you know, you're trying to get someone to do something and you start paying them, more and more money, their motivation drops. The reason being, well, uh, what sort of tasks do you need to pay me to do a task that I really don't like? So when you start making me behave as if I don't like this task by giving me more and more money to do it, you see my motivation drop. So it starts to explain these kind of counterintuitive findings that you see in psychology. What would be one piece of homework that you would give our listeners to concretely implement some of the ideas and strategies that we've talked about today? Oh, my goodness. What's the, I, I think I see picking up on what you're saying about the eulogy, I think is good. I would say probably the best thing that comes out of 59 in terms of success is the, the pre-mortem. The idea that before any, you convince yourself that project has been an utter disaster and you try and figure out why it failed so badly. It's one of the most effective ways of finding out problems uh, with a scheme before that scheme starts, because otherwise you get this huge rose-tinted view, you're convinced it's going to be great, and you don't take the necessary precautionary steps. So I, I think the pre-mortem is very helpful. And where can listeners go if they want to find you, your books, and all of these resources online? richardwiseman.com uh, is my website and the links off of there will take you to my YouTube channel uh, which is uh, in 59 seconds which has a lot of these tips and, and hints there in, in a minute then obviously there's the books we've spoken about luck factor and 59 seconds as if principle it's a few other uh, look at sleep and, and dreaming in a book called night school it is all out there and it's, it's lovely when people uh, read that material and, and feedback. And, and so, uh, you know, if, if people have supported that work over the years, uh, my, my thanks and gratitude to them. Well, Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom, uh, so many different strategies and, and concrete evidence-based things for people to implement in their lives. It's been an honor to have you on here. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt 
at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. One, two, Three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.